2: FM to get started.
0: Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. And now, here's Popcorn Talks Marvel Movie News.
2: Good morning, very Marvelites. Christian Bot here for another fun installment of Marvel Movie News joined by Rachel Radner, Rachel Goodman, and of course Michael Shirley. And if you're a Marvel fan to the extent that you watch a show like this, our guest needs no introduction, but he deserves one. So I'll let you know that uh, we're joined by author Chris Claremont, who is responsible for the legendary 17-year run on Uncanny X-Men and a variety of adjacent ongoing X-Men titles and miniseries. Uh, Essentially, the story for every Marvel movie in the majority of the animated series was inspired by stories Chris wrote. Uh, and in any case, Chris, welcome back to the show. Uh, I'm Christian, that's Rachel, that's Michael. We're very happy that you uh, are joining us today.
0: Oh, it's very cool, man. I'm I'm totally, I'm totally <laughs> like, you know, just, I'm cool. <laughs> I, I, had, I, had my,
1: <laughs> I like your shades. Yeah, 30 oh,
0: second really shitty impersonation. <laughs> <laughs> a, <you> know, <laughs> oh, nice laugh. My teeny tiny eyes. Uh,
2: well, uh, just trying I, to channel Stan. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I want to uh, jump right into what we're uh, specifically talking to you about today, which is this new uh, extended cut of God Loves Man Kills. Uh, that uh, I I think uh, a lot of people would say is the seminal X-Men story, originally published in 1982. There's now this extended cut that literally came out this week. Uh, And I kind of want to talk about the original approach to God Loves Man Kills that, and you talk about it in an interview that's in this extended cut, that the idea was this was a standalone X-Men story that if you never read any other X-Men story, you would get it from this story. Yep, absolutely. So obviously, it being a graphic novel, it's you know aimed at more mature audiences, and it's a little bit more adult. You know, not that the you know not that I'm saying that comic books are for kids, but it, there's some some moments in there that I think are very much able to you know, be <laughs> a little bit more graphic. Uh, like for me, whenever I think of the story. There's that you know horrific scene in the first couple of pages, at least in the original version, where the purifiers kill the brother and sister and hang them up mm-hmm. on the, the swing set. This is always the first thing I think about, and I think that you have you're able to have that uh, you know when uh, when Kitty's speaking with uh, Stevie Hunter, she uses the N word, which today we refer to that just as the N word, uh, mm-hmm. and I think it's such an important moment, and I'm glad that. When this is being re released for a modern day audience, they didn't feel compelled to make any changes. Were there conversations about should any of this change, or was it always we're going to present it as is? There were no conversations. I mean,
0: the thing to bear in mind is that when this was originally published, mainstream monthly, bi monthly comics were under the auspices of the Comics Code Authority. There were no inappropriate words whatsoever um i mean we couldn't even call people zombies that's where the marvel term zombies came from because it was considered too creepy yeah. <laughs> so well it, it was a more innocent age sure you know i mean we that was back in the era when if a president did something wrong we booted him out
2: of office um and if he I, hadn't I, been pardoned I mean, he would have been indicted so i obviously I, don't, I don't even know if i can remember a time like that but, <laughs> but but yeah to your point about the comics code i know that you know famously there were issues of amazing spider-man where harry osborne is addicted to drugs and the whole yeah. point is drugs are bad kids and the comics code was like no, no no we can't teach them lessons about drugs being bad so right. I, I think that, that well that was kind of the first instance at least where Stan was like, Well we gotta do these stories anyway.
0: That was Stan's instance, but at the same time Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams did this I think it was Neil Adams, but Denny O'Neill wrote an equally powerful story involving um
2: uh Speedy, I believe. I believe it's speedy. Well
0: it was uh uh What's his Green Arrow and his kid sidekick?
3: Yeah. Arsenal. Arsenal, mm-hmm. Speedy.
2: Yeah, so
0: I think Speedy. he went by Speedy to at the Speedy time. Speedy back yeah. then. So I would have thought that was the name that would go to um, Flash's kid, but there you go. <laughs> of course. Um, DC was much more onomatopoeic. But the point was that, that, in, that era, in that time, in that place, Um, there was a need to, for want of a better phrase, get more relevant. And that meant addressing concepts and attitudes. I mean, in the moment where Green Lantern is confronted by by this elderly black gentleman who says, you do a lot for the green folks, you do a lot for the purple folks, you do a lot for the red folks, when are you going to do something for the black folks? and i remember reading it when i was in high school and thinking holy cow because you had neil's extraordinary visuals i mean powerfully empathetic visuals and you had denny's script and it was like wow wow you didn't you don't see things like that in a comic book and it was those were the first I guess, shots across the bow of the comics code to say we're trying to grow up a little and we want to talk about things that are not just, oh, Superman, I'm going to turn into a black person for a day so I can see see what it's like. I mean, one would think if, if Superman and Lois were going to do a story like that, the machine would break and she'd be stuck that way and they would both have to deal with it. And how would it be if she walked back into the Daily Planet and Perry wouldn't hire her because she is a person of color?
3: Oh, you've got a story right there.
1: Yeah. Uh, 40 years
2: out of date. Well, still. Go ahead, Rachel.
1: My question is then, given the time period of when this was first originally published, how Mm -hmm. did um, they get around any pushback that might have been given toward um, the comic for bringing up this topic.
0: Well, that was why it was done as a graphic novel. The, the epic line was meant to be stuff we couldn't do in the traditional Marvel format. It was supposed to be, quote-unquote, adult material. Um, it would be like saying, we're going to do an episode of Magnum P.I., but we're going to do it in the movies. Why? Well, because we can do stuff in the movies that we can't do on TV. And, you know, it's, for us, a lot of the temptation is, well, we'll just throw in a lot of naughty language. And, eh, or, you know, a lots, of, lots of TNA, because that was where everyone's mind goes in that first instance. and. Weezy Simonson and Brett and I, we didn't want to go down that road. We wanted to do a story as, you know, as we said a few minutes ago, if you only read one X-Men story and you want to know what the whole Mishigas is all about, mutants, heroes, mutants, normal people, heroes, villains, this would be it. And that's why the Is someone we couldn't do in a regular issue because you know we were coming right out and saying this is a major league televangelist, evangelical Christian who doesn't have a clue what it really means. He's he is a soldier, a ranger who, with the death of his wife and kids, has lost his way. He thought he found it by becoming a minister by embracing what he what he his perception of the word of god but coming from the from the reality of being a soldier of being a person of conflict he drew the wrong lessons he viewed this as a war a battle between good and evil between christianity and everybody else and he defined his Actions by the on those terms. It's not to say that belief is bad or that religion is bad, but you can get off the track from the best of intentions as easily as you can from the worst of intentions. I and oh sorry. And the the key to this for me anyway is the person who finds the kids, the person who has the initial. Reaction to what's happening. Who looks at it and says, "This is 1940 all over again." Is Magneto. This is this is the world he endured as a child, and will do anything to prevent it. And what what I was trying to say, what we Brett and I were trying to say in this story is, yes, Magneto is the adversary, but he's not the bad guy. And and it comes down to at the end him saying, "See, Charles, I was right."
3: I know. And so, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I say I. I know. Initially, when the idea for this story came up, they wanted Magneto to die in the very beginning. Uh how do, if you'd have had to stick with that, how would you? How would that story have even worked?
0: I would have found a way, but. <laughs> No, having Magneto, I mean, if you look at the Neil Adams, when Neil did five or six pages to demonstrate his approach to the story, it's a wonderful, to me, it's a wonderful superhero moment. It's a battle between the X-Men and Magneto. Buildings fall on everybody. It's. I look at that and I think, oh, okay, Spielberg, go to town. <laughs> but it wouldn't have been the story that brent and i told it wouldn't have gone the direction that we wanted and we and Weezy wanted to go in and i don't know if it would have if it were as powerful it would be for totally different reasons this is not a story about superheroes it's a story about people it's a story about the eight of them coming face to face with what it means to be an X-Men, why they're walking down the path they're going, and why a lot of the perspective bounces between Kitty and
4: and Ileana. The kids are the defining moment here. The adults, they're, they run into trouble, but the kids
0: are the ones who end up saving the day or trying to save the day. And it focuses in on Kitty with Stryker saying about... Nightcrawler, you dare call that human? And Kitty's saying, yeah, if the choice is you or him, I'm going with him. Why? Because she knows that Kurt, for all his physiognomy, is probably the most devout Christian they know. Because Kurt's decision when he was young is, I can either hate myself or I can figure out that if I look this way, it's because God made a decision. If I say that God made a decision to make me a monster, does that make God evil? And if God's evil, what the hell is my,
4: the point of my life? So he decided, finally, God did it for a reason. Therefore, being ethical
0: and human, I've got to find the reason and live as much of my life as humanly possible by the tenets laid down in the New Testament. Because I went back and read the whole flipping book and you know and listened to evangelical preachers for like six months. All on TV, of course. And to me that's that defined it was a defining moment for him as a character. But then you have Kitty saying, Yeah, if it's him or you, I'm with him. And that's why the saving total contrast to today in terms of perception, the person who saves the day, who resolves the conflict,
4: is an officer of the law, because that's what good cops do. They resolve things positively.
1: So, and that's one of the things that, just in general, that I really loved about um, the story, is the way that um, you represented how things can be twisted, how there can be extremes um, with people who uh, use propaganda and use um, religion as a means to an end. Like for example, um, the way that Stryker was using Xavier to basically make everyone believe that he was inflicting the will of God um, near the end. Um, And so my question to you is, during this writing process, when you're coming up with, when you're deciding to do all of these things, um, mm-hmm. did you work with Brent uh, Anderson like very closely ahead of time or was it more of your vision and then he um, was able to kind of pull off of the vision that you had in the way that you wanted to represent this?
0: Well, I have to say the person who got involved, who I worked with the most, was Wheezy. I mean what a lot of people don't sorry a lot of people don't understand about comics especially in those days the crucial role played by editors um that could both damage a work and make it transcendent i mean when i came into the business stan was the boss stan was the editor editor in chief roy was his Roy Thomas was his right-hand man. By the time this rolled around, the editor-in-chief was... I don't know if it was still Archie, but... Archie was epic. Jim Shooter was editor-in-chief.
2: Right, exactly.
0: But the, the managing boss of the X franchise was Louise Simonson. And what we basically do is... I'd have an idea, and then I would sit down, and she and I would bat bat things back and forth. Uh, what do you think of this moment? What do you think of that moment? We'll go in this direction we'll go I don't know what to do next. Well, think about it a little and i and I'd have an inspiration um, the The thing I found most wonderful about her is her willingness to let me as a creator find my own answer and then run with it and see what happened next. Uh, She didn't feel impelled to impose a structure on things because then it would become, I guess, her story more than mine. But at the end, the end result was, in a lot of ways, it was her story as much as mine. And then we'd both reach out to Brent and bring him into the creative matrix and see what ideas he had visually. The problem was, bluntly, in a normal world, we'd have had six months and Brent's involvement would have been a whole lot more seminal and, and all-embracing. But Marvel doesn't work that way, even then.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
0: so we were sitting there thinking, huh, we have our six months, and then two creators responsible for the issues ahead of us fell apart on deadlines, mm-hmm. which I know never happens these days. Everybody made <laughs> oh, <a> no. them. <laughs> So this is why Bob McLeod and I suddenly discovered that what we thought would be the first issue of New Mutants was now a graphic novel. And we had to slam it out overnight, which we did. And then Brent and I were the next in line. So Brent was basically, I got to draw (laughs) this. Just (laughs) send me (laughs) pages. So all the conceptual stuff fell on Wheezy's and my shoulders. Out of necessity. Be,
3: uh, Touching on...
0: Because also we weren't working full script. Sorry, I'm getting tangled in my mic. Cord. So right. the, the Marvel style that Stan established, time to do full scripts. And besides, when you're working with Jack, the like of Jack Kirby or Steve Ditko, why are you wasting your time? Just point Jack in the right direction and turn him <laughs> loose. Which... If you want to know the bad side of that read the first year of New Gods and just <laughs> no. he's so good. Yes. So he was so good, so creative, so gifted that every page of every issue was new stuff which after 3 issues as a reader your head explodes because you can't keep track. <laughs> and Well, D.C. has been living off of Jack's creation now for 35 years. But Stan knew how to edit him, which is to pare it down to the essentials that get you through that story and set up the next story. But to Jack, he's looking at all his cool stuff being thrown away by Stan or postponed by Stan, and it made him crazy. Um, The same thing sort of happened to me and John Byrne. John would... Draw this neat stuff and want the story to go in direction A, and I 'd look at it and say, "Oh no, 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 B is so much better," and I'd just rewrite it, yeah, and after you know after thirty issues, it got to a point where John couldn't take it anymore. Um, it would be like me writing a plot or writing a story, and having the artist go somewhere completely different, and I'd have to figure out how to make it work um. Which happened to me, ten a few years later. Sure. So, with another artist who shall remain nameless.
4: <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: but that's it. It comics then was a totally interactive uh, industry. Now, with writers essentially expected to write full scripts that are sent to whomever. Sometimes it can work, but sometimes, as with the last few jobs that I've done for Marvel with Salvador La Roca, it's like for my attitude is, why am I doing a full script? This is salvage. He he can do anything. And the editors fortunately have agreed with me. So you find the right creative structure for each partner in turn, and you find a way to go with it.
3: In that same vein... In that same vein, the characters, you've created so many epic characters. And so many of them have gone through so many costume changes. So, you know, the first one's going to be, like, really important. When you're first creating a character, I'm sh- sure it's different now than it was then. But how much did the writer, or or just you, get to put into what the character's costume looked like? And how Woody, they I... looked.
0: The irony is, I just got copies of the omnibus, uh, giant size, well, natural-sized edition honoring Dave Cockrum. That's, I guess, is just coming out. And looking through that book, you will see exactly what I'm talking about in the sense with Dave. I mean, a lot of artists, if you ask them to design a character, will design, make a design, and that's it. With Dave for Phoenix, for example. We talked about who she was, who we wanted Jean to be, what Phoenix could do, what did it mean, and then he went off and thought a little, and came back and started sketching. And by the time he was done, we had 36, 40 designs. They weren't all unique designs. He had about a core of seven, but we would find different ways. You know, does she is it a full body suit? Do, do we turn it into a uh, bare waist do we turn it this color that color boots that go to the thigh boots that stay at her ankle gloves that go round and round in circles uh capes uh, we would play with it he would play with it and we look through and say well you know if we took one from column a and put it on column b hmm, okay let's try this uh, maybe not maybe we'll give her glasses no nope, that didn't work either
4: You keep playing until you hit the right synergy. And then you think, oh, bingo.
0: Then you have to find the color. (laughs) So with Phoenix, it went around and around the circle. And again, some of these ideas were swiped for other characters. For example, in his case, Nightcrawler was originally intended for the Legion of Superheroes. So was Storm as a character named Black Cat. Looking at,
4: Ooh.
0: or hardly changed from the the original concept to what appeared in X-Men, Black Cat changed phenomenally when she became Storm. But that's, that's what Dave does. He, he did, sorry. He would play with concepts, play with characters, play with realities, and bingo. Uh, that. A, a talent like him is extraordinarily rare. B, it's not something that's done today simply because, I don't know, that's an editorial decision. Um, I think part of the challenge is that no one outside of Spider-Man or maybe the FF, no one or Superman or Batman. Okay, maybe Wonder Woman. You don't think of characters with outfits that will last seven or eight decades. I mean, thinking of it, it won't be long before, well, you know, when Spider Man was created a century ago. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, sorry, my my screen just shut off.
2: Oh, Um, we still see you.
4: Yeah.
0: No, but I mean, to think that we're talking in Marvel, we're talking about characters who were created. 70 years ago. How, are these outfits relevant? Well, yeah, they work. Why? I, because Iron Man's uh, armor is cool. And yet in the movies, they found it a, a way to make it more cool with with nanites.
4: Yeah.
0: Spider-Man, much... Uh, four, you know. Yeah And in certain... how Depending on how you... Like Hawkeye, the visual evolves. So you find what works, and the same applies to comics. I think, for me, if I were approaching, if I were riding Magno today, I would try to find a way to approach the purpose of the helmet. It shields me from telepaths. Okay, but... You realize if someone hits you on the head with a hammer, that's gotta hurt. Just from a <laughs> little, little alone. So, is there anything else that helmet does? Well, I was thinking, okay. When he's in space, yes, the helmet links up. You know, there are membranes that automatically extend to the rest of his costume, and bingo, he's in a pressure suit. Over the years, my visual. My conception of, for example, the New Mutants or the classic X-Men armor, well, costume, well, it really looks kind of hun- weird, just, you <laughs> know, very 60. Yeah, but what you don't realize, it's nanite bob- body armor. It survives impacts from all manner of, of energy and projectile weapons. It'll protect you whether whether you're underwater, in in, a vac- in vacuum space. You can survive whether you're in winter, Antarctic winter, or Saharan summer. Bingo! You can do anything with a skin-tight costume because, A, the character looks good, but B, you control the words. And the words are what are used to define the material, the costume, the person. So you play. You find as things evolve, so does the storytelling or the way you structure the storytelling.
2: You know, uh, in, in that vein, I think uh, an interesting thing is, you know, Kitty, who is such an important character and uh, always been uh, my personal favorite, as I've talked to you about in the past, there were some very different uh, growing pains and evolutions. So in this book, we have, of course, the uh, aerial costume and codename, which for me, she didn't actually have that long. I mean, it seemed like she settled into Shadow Cat for a while. How much of that was behind the scenes? just trying to figure out what was right for her. Or did you think it was appropriate that a 13 year old girl would probably just impulsively be like, no, I don't want to wear a skull cap. I want my, my hair to show or uh, you know, how much of that was just maybe you didn't like some of those designs uh, for her earlier iterations, because it seemed like she stuck with shadow cat for the longest of at least those three before she went the Jean gray route and really just became kitty pride without a codename. As far as I can remember.
0: Mm-hmm. How to textfully respond to
4: this.
3: (laughs) (laughs) She looked kind of like Marvel Girl to me as...
2: uh, As uh, as Ariel, yeah.
3: Yeah. Well, one iteration. Trying to show that
4: before, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: (sighs) (laughs) The thing to bear in mind, at least, again, we're talking a while ago. Sure. Is... She was 13, which weirdly meant something significantly different then than it has evolved to being now. For us doing the book, or for me writing the book, to be 13, whether it's her or Wolfsbane or Bobby for that matter, in New Mutants, it means someone's at the the starting, run, starting point of adolescence, which is where everything changes. She hasn't made up her mind. She doesn't know who she is. She hasn't a clue what's going on. All she wants to do is, oh my God, I'm in junior high, you know? <laughs> right. Um, And in Kitty's pl- case, much as John really is pissed off at me, I, you know, How do I differentiate her from everybody else in the team? She's the smart kid. Why? Because smart kids are loners and smart kids feel oppressed by the world around them, i.e. everybody else. And smart girls are even more screwed up or screwed over than anybody else because in those days, girls were just supposed to be ornaments. And having, you know, the only thing that would be worse is to be a black smart genius and be oppressed on every level so and she was from chicago which you know always has to get (laughs) has to deal with new york
4: yeah of course
0: well i know this because i have a chunk of family in chicago and we would talk about this every now and then
2: yeah they're literally referred to as the second city they're telling you you know new york's better than you right chicago (laughs) yeah
0: Saturday Night Live has been living off of Second City graduates for the yes. last 40
1: years. That's true. <laughs> That's very true. Um, gotcha. So how, how did you okay. get into...
0: How did I get into...
1: So how did you get into the mindset of a 13-year-old girl to be able to write her? Because, you know, reading this, I <laughs> I, I love how you represented this age period of a female. Well,
0: Wheezy's daughter... Juliana was 13. Her best friends were a set of identical twins who were 13. I took notes. (laughs) Because that's what writers do. It's like, there's a seminal moment from that, you know, Wheezy and Walter were away for a couple of weeks. They came home and Wheezy got gotten a haircut. Her hair was really short and Walter, had changed. I don't know if you've seen any pictures of Walter. It's like, huh? Gone the opposite route now. He's totally Letterman.
4: <laughs> but they walked in the door. And
0: they walked in the door of their apartment. Juliana took one look at them and ran away in tears, because the reality of her world had changed, and no one had asked her. Well, I swiped that one. Yeah. Aurora comes back for. You know, shows up at at Wolverine's wedding with a mohawk, wearing skin tied leather, and Kitty is like, "Oh my god, the <laughs> of my world has just gone." And you know, the only worst thing would have been if she'd showed up with looking like that. Um,
2: with Yukio as her date, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, referring to that, there's a there's a que- <laughs> there's a question uh, in the chat that kind of. Ties into this. It's from uh, someone named Sam Edmonston. Uh, you know, in in the present day and in more recent years, the idea of having gay characters is more acceptable. And characters that you write. I mean, you co-created North Star, and then obviously Bobby Drake uh, was somebody that you uh, you know were able to write for a while. Mm. Um, were there ever any inklings that even if it's not those characters, uh, like I, I mean, I, I I would point to. You know, Mystique and Destiny, I always felt like they had that sort of a relationship. Was there something that you were like, I feel this in my head, but Comics Code Authority, editorial, won't actually let me put gay characters in a book that is essentially for children? Well, okay. As far as Mystique and Destiny goes, they've been together
0: since the mid-19th century. Um, You know, I mean, by together, they're not only walking together working together they live together sure draw your own conclusions <laughs> i mean it's a it's a happy go lucky treat because mystique can be anything destiny wants her to be that's true and destiny being blind at least in the present <laughs> day it doesn't matter yeah at least in terms of huh okay who are you now <laughs> um but again this goes back to what i was saying before it was almost a game between Frank Miller and I, you can do whatever you want in monthly comics. You just have to be subtle. And
4: subtlety can be a very broad term sometimes. Um, You know, it's, it's not that hard.
0: It's, you just have to figure out, do I want to hit the reader over the head with, with, you know, the proverbial baseball bat? Or do we just do it? And if they don't notice when they're twelve, well, they might come back when they're twenty-four or forty and realize, huh? Didn't you, see <laughs> <that one
4: coming?"
0: laughs> um, you know, I mean, John John's intent from the start was that North Star was gay, which you know there was Alpha Flight. That's not my bag. Sure, it's not my part of the my part of the the canon, but. Yeah, I knew there were characters who who certainly could make people, could raise questions. I mean, all you have to do is follow the relationship of Kitty and Iliana for years, and in a way, how pissed off – well, all you have to do is read Days of Future Past. In the last scene where where Rachel's holding – kitty and saying, you know, I love you. Well, is that a kid saying something about a mom figure? Oh. Okay. Maybe. Um, you know, it's it. for me as a writer for the, comp, the being trained in the era I came from and perhaps to a large extent still in habit, a lot of this falls under the heading of none of your damn business. No offense. No, sure. You don't walk up to someone and say, hi, I'm Bill. Are you gay? <laughs> you know, it's like, huh? Any more than one should say, are you a person of this color or that color? Are you a communist? Yeah. It's like if, if they are a good person, Bingo, that's, couldn't you not be satisfied with that and move on? You might discover all the other elements as you go, organically out of the interaction between people, but that's, that's, I guess, like life. You don't, you shouldn't hit people over the head right off the bat because then that caption, that moment becomes, that's the story. Maybe it can be, maybe it isn't. You know, it's like I'm working on an idea where you think Nightcrawler's true love is Amanda Sefton. Yes, a a good-hearted, heroic, almost um, heaven-like sorceress. And then we threw in Bloody Bess, or I threw in Bloody Bess. Huh, psychotic killer. Yeah, but... (laughs) Kurt looks at her and goes, hmm, there's something about her. And she looks at him and goes, (laughs) hmm, something about you. So what do you, I mean, it's a yin-yang. It's, everyone looks at Kitty and Peter and thinks, huh, that's the relationship. Yeah, she's 13, he's 19. Maybe it's a relationship, though he better keep his hands to himself. Trust me, that conversation came up more than once in the book as well. You know, where where Kitty's, you know, when the, they're fleeing the brood, and she says, "Oh my God, we're all gonna die." You want to do it? And Peter's looking down at her, and and Paul Smith, he drew like the most innocent thirteen-year-old imaginable in the most traditional nightgown. I mean, it's like you could not get any more nineteenth-century. Perfect than that, and Colossus does the hero thing. He says, "I know how you feel, and perhaps I feel the same way." Uh, but tomorrow, but this moment will never come again in your life. And if if we survive tomorrow, you might you can't go back once you cross that Rubicon. That's not exactly what he said, but that's the essence. no, yeah, but yeah, he, yeah. he said, "You're thirteen, kid." <laughs> Grow up <or laughs> yeah. well, a
3: see. character
0: you create. I mean, for me, sorry, for me, if we're gonna get on a soapbox, that's it. She's a kid. Yeah. Which a few years later, when she's sixteen, and in the clutches of um uh,
4: oh of um Oh, what's-her-face? Uh,
0: Captain Britain's girlfriend. Oh, Megan? Courtney Ross. Oh, yeah. I see. Is that Courtney Ross? Yeah. Who's been possessed by evil. And they have the, this whole s- totally self-indulgent scene that Alan Davis did beautifully, where it's Kitty's birthday. And she gives Kitty a piece of cake on her finger. And Kitty just, like, eats it up. And I'm going, Huh. We're really pushing the envelope this time <laughs> because yes, there is a hint of that. It is a seduction. And the culmination of the seduction is at the end of the story when, you know, they come back when Courtney gives Kitty her birthday present, which is a Jaguar. <laughs> it's a car. And she, gosh, I'm, you know not have to wait like three years to be, to get a license to drive it because this is England and they take this seriously. And Courtney said, no, all you have to do is not get caught. <laughs> and Kitty goes for it because this is cool. Yeah, And she's in an age where wanting to be cool kind of creeps up on you and undercuts, I'm a hero. And the one thing I'm pissed off at is, I guess, I never got a chance to play further with that relationship and see where it would have led, but that 's the nature of serial comics and
3: fine
2: Michael, what were you going to say before
3: well um a, a character that is very much in the same vein as Kitty, one of my very favorite characters uh jubilee uh, <laughs> she has Sorry. changed so much since you created her and I've I've been wanting to ask you this well before I even knew we were going to get this interview but what do you think about Jubilee being a vampire I mean I know she's not anymore but would you ever in a million years have thought she'd be a vampire or one day she'd lead Generation X which is like my oh my god my favorite that's your book yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs)
4: Oh, I'm sorry. This is going to be too long of an answer, isn't it? Not really. Okay. uh, Well,
0: it's funny because I read a review of, of God Loves this morning where the guy who wrote it said, what I don't understand is why Kitty looks like someone in her 40s. You know, shouldn't she be in her 20s? And the problem, the interesting thing is Brett and I, went around the block
4: with Jordan on this, starting with, okay, how the old is she?
0: And what do you mean?
4: Well, that, that
0: you know, if you look at the Marvel structure, reads like in his 50s. 40s 50s he's a he's the older guy why because he's got all this white hair you know discreetly on his side but it's all there and you work down from there but you also think huh when the x-men started they were all high school age but now scott's and it you know the way we're playing it is <sighs> scott's in his 30 20s late 20s 30s okay how old's colossus well I mean, sorry, how old's, um yeah, how old's Colossus? In his late 20s? Okay, could he's like, seven years younger? Show, so should she be in her early 20s? Okay. Then I see an issue where Colossus has a beard, and he looks not in his 30s. He looks older. And I'm thinking, if we're, I mean, this goes back to an issue years ago when the writer of Excalibur wanted to have
4: a relationship between Kitty and Pete Wisdom. And, you know, my head's exploding right
0: from the start, but it was pointed out that she's underage, legally underage, especially in England. You can't do that. So boom, he bumped her up to her early middle 20s, (laughs) except that our points were raised. This isn't DC, we don't do that. Everything's interconnected. If you bump her up six years, then Peter Parker's like in his 30s, pushing 30. If Peter's pushing 30, Tony Stark pushing Robert Downey's real age. Mm-hmm. If Robert Downey is that age, then Ben and, you know, I mean, even if you go back 25 years, <sighs> okay, so we're talking first Iraq war instead of World War II. But it still starts to get really, really complicated uh, in in dealing with the Marvel Universe. So, the the decision we got was that Kitty kind of play late thirties, near you know young late 30s. Thir- and believe me, the the Brett's original sketches
4: were older. So we cut her. cut her down to,
0: we I mean, hope was her thirties. Some people read it that way. Some people don't, but this is where, you know, this is why the dialogue gets fudgy when she's talking to, to um, Kate about, you know, where she's saying, you're the age I was when this all started. The age I am, I was in the book that I'm, the story I'm telling you now, but it's like dealing with Batman. How old is he? You know, he used to be a millionaire. Now he's a multi-billionaire. How old is Superman? How old is, you know, Peter Parker when he, you know, he started out, he's in high school for God's sakes. Now, I mean, look, if you watch the Spider-Verse movie, you've got like a whole bunch of different ages, all of which work in the movie, but making them work in a monthly comic book gets complicated. So my... My short answer is (sighs) Jubilee was there to be the pain in the ass innocent. I mean, she, Wolfsbane, Kitty, Ilyana in the beginning, (sighs) they were supposed to be the gateway for readers who are in middle school. If you that's want how older. I got
3: hooked with Jubilee. Well, but
0: that's it. You know, I mean, that's I would collect the cards,
3: with- and then I got a little older, and then you know, you introduced Jubilee, and she's like around my age. So I think, mm-hmm. oh wow, what's that? And then that's how I started. Reading the comics instead of just collecting the cards. Well, then on top of that
2: too was my my wife and her little sister. You know, going back to when the character was current, you know, first from the uh, the animated series, they're Chinese American, so that was another mm-hmm. level in which they identified with her. So she was younger, and it was like, look, there's somebody on TV that that we feel like looks like us. So I think that uh, you know it's it's an important character, and for some reason I don't know how aware you are of this, people really like to make fun of jubilee they people what? i think, don't like the character and uh i i think news to me i think she's a very interesting character I'm, I'm i'm just talking about from the era which you were writing her some of this mm. other stuff is is news to me what michael's talking about but uh I, I don't and just the idea that you know she was basically homeless living at the mall when we meet her i just thought uh, you know yeah, was such a rich character the
0: backstory of that is her parents were mainland. Entrepreneurs who lived in Los Angeles making millions. You know, we were at the start of of the Chinese breakout. But then something happened. What what happened? We don't know. But it involved the Chinese consulate, and that's that. Well, Jubilee, you know, and Jubilee was supposed to go back to China with the grandpa, you know, with the rest of the family. She said because she was born in the United States. Screw that, I'm, no. So she goes to the only place she knows as a safe haven, which is the mall. Remember malls? They existed before we got, you know, on before, before Amazon.
3: Well, is it hard to accept, you know, when such drastic changes change as they get older and you're not the writer anymore and they, you know, they make her a vampire and, and then they make her not a vampire and then she's leading the team she was the, kid
0: in. I'll take the rap for Storm being a vampire because I wrote the stories.
4: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but,
2: but, but to be fair, Storm was, a, Storm was a vampire for like one issue.
0: It's, 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 but that's it. You know, uh, Stan's, I mean, Stan's dictum to us back in the day was these aren't your characters like it or not, they're Marvel's characters. And none of you, other than Claremont, a moron, are going to be on the book forever. (laughs) So your rule, the rule is, you get the toys for as long as you play with them, but you got to put them back where you found them, the way you found them. And obviously over the course of time, that, that... rule has become fungible in the same way that the Marvel style used to be plots, then script art, then scripts. Now they write full scripts. Everything
4: changes the thing. But for me, if I'm not writing the book. Yeah. I used to read Frank and
0: Denny because I love their work because they were stories that intrigued me. I sadly don't find myself as entranced. These days, um, it's too complicated. I, I, you know, in the old days, you you read an issue, you you read a series, you bonded with the characters in that series, you stuck around with them, and if there was an occasional team up or a crossover, okay. I mean, sorry. Stan's basic rule to young writers was: each issue is a story. You can have continued events that will evolve over the course of a year or whatever, but each issue is a story. Why? Because distribution sucks. And there's no guarantee if you're doing a multi-part story that the reader will, will be able to get the next part. Now, if it's a good story, you can go to two-parters. You know, Stan did it himself. If it's the coming of Galactus, okay you can go to three. Well, you can go to two and a half, the end of the last issue has to set up the next issue, which it's a fundamental rule. Don't take the reader for granted. If if you, I mean, there's a, I don't know, there's something either at DC or at Marvel, that's 27 parts, like five different series over six months. I'm looking at this and thinking, holy cow, that's crazy. Why? Well, because what if you do a shitty issue right off the bat (laughs) or anywhere along the line? You're stuck with the arc. You know, as 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 Archie Goodwin used to say when he was boss, you fuck up, you got 30 days to fix it. (laughs) You know, but if that's part of an ongoing 40 issue crossover. How do you fix it? How do you get in touch with the, the the writer of the next chapter? Who may be ahead of you, may be done. You know, how do you how do you put the the machine back together again? It's, I mean, they find a way. But for me as a reader, it's like you watch you watch a pilot episode, and if you fall in love with it, you stick with the series. If you don't, you you turn to something else. But a lot of what used to happen in a lot of cases was, you'd, you know, you'd come back. Well, for example, um, Fraser, nobody much liked the first, but they kept it around and people came back. And over the summer on reruns, they watched it. And suddenly, well, there's the next 10 years taken care of. You know, it you have to give both the audience and the a little bit of patience to to hit to find its their rhythm to find and if you do you can end up with the best of the best but if you if you pull the plug too quickly well that's a path not taken
2: um, I want to uh, circle back on uh, what we're uh, focused on, which is this <laughs> extended cut of God Loves, Man Kills, because you referenced it, and I did want to take a few minutes. We only have a little bit of time left. I did want to focus on the new material, which is this framing story. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. you talked about it, and I uh, really liked the fact that it refers to this X Men Black Magneto story from a few years ago, and the character of Kate for a year actually. OK, so it just it's just felt like a couple years, I think, the last oh, the last six months. <laughs> but uh, and just talk about the decision to kind of do that and, and, you know, revisiting that story. And, you know, there's the moment in the original story that I, I think was very powerful where Magneto thinks of his own daughter, thinks of when he met Kitty Pride and she was 13 and this other Kate also being 13. So talk about frame, using okay. that story to frame this one.
4: Well, there
0: are a couple of interesting elements to it. Uh, Firstly, it was originally a six-page frame, three in the front, three in the back,
4: which limited our options. And as I evolved the story, I
0: kept going back and saying, couldn't we have another page? Well, actually... Another page would be, how about ten? You you said six, but I'll raise you to ten, <laughs> because these are it's a really good idea, and, and they you know Jordan agreed with me reluctantly, and we got <laughs> ten. But I mean, I as I started to say, I read this review online review this morning, and the critic didn't like it, because it's like, huh, I was expecting something brilliant, but all we have is. Kitty showing up and talking to this kid and
4: introduce it, setting up the story. And my, my feeling is, yeah, because that's what an intro does.
0: Ideally, when you see how we get out of the situation at the end of the second issue or the back of the graphic novel, it will all fall into shape or not. But from Brent's point of view, holy cow, I get to draw the dragon. Cool. <laughs> it's you know i wanted to find a way to because the world that exists today is in many respects different yet scarier the different yet the same yet
4: scarier than the world when i wrote it i mean To tell people 40 years ago that
0: your government will collect families, separate parents from kids, put them all into detention centers that defying court orders to reunite families on all sorts of excuses and not care about Shielding them from a global pandemic, just the concept of a global pandemic itself was scary enough.
4: That's the reality. To try to put that in terms within a comic book to make it relevant to the readers. Not only in terms of what is happening, but how they affect Character, well, Kate in this instance, is a challenge.
0: Part of that is the reason, you know, Kitty shows up and Kate's,
4: all I know about you is what I see on the news, which means you're scary. You could be a terrorist. You know, I on the other hand, I liked Eric. He was nice until
0: he like used his power and then I realized who and what he was and it scared me. I'm
4: giving a lot of subtext. But the whole point of this story is looking at people and seeing who they are, judging the person and not is
0: Nightcrawler a monster just because he looks like a monster? Or is he a decent
4: person who just happens to look weird? Um is there a part of us that will say mutants are okay, but we're only going to consider them two
0: thirds of a real person and we won't give them the right to vote. I mean, that's traditional, isn't it? There's precedent.
4: Um, there are, there is a subset of this country that might feel otherwise, but saying it
0: in reference to fictional realities and fictional characters might hopefully get under people's automatic reaction in a way that will hopefully make them step back and think
4: for a little. What does this mean? What do the words of the Sermon on the Mount mean? Look at the weakest among you. Look at the hurt. Look at those who are oppressed, do you not consider them your brothers? Well, maybe, kinda, or not. The same goes here. It's like, hi, I'm Kitty, I'm Kate Pride. Oh, you're a mutant. Yeah, like Magneto, like Eric. I thought we could sit down and talk. Okay, but
0: the TV says you're scary. You're you're a terrorist. Well, let's talk, and you you know, you tell me.
3: Well, there's never I, been a more appropriate time than now for an extended cut of this book.
0: Yeah, I, I you go know, ahead. i was hoping there'd never be an appropriate time for the book at, at all. But sure. surprise, sorry, didn't mean
4: to get. <laughs> but I mean, this the, the thing. I'm sorry, it's just, it's not about red and blue. It's not about cities and countryside. It's not about Alabama versus Massachusetts. It's about who we are as people. Do you want to look at the people? I mean, when you, when you talk about society, if you look back through history, most people consider society their village, because
0: these are the people you know. These are the people you can actually meet and interact with. Now you get in your car, you drive hundred miles and you're somewhere, well, drive 10 miles, you're somewhere completely different. How do you relate to them? How do they relate to you? What's it like to move into a house and realize the people are looking at you
4: and only seeing your color. The people are looking at you and only seeing the fact that you're two people of the same gender. That look at you and see, huh? That's an adopted kid.
0: How do you know? Well, because, you know, the kids one, you know, and they're ah oh.
4: you have you have cats, they have dogs. It shouldn't I know I sound so naive. It it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be that hey, I fly in a
0: $60 million jet. Why? Because my parishioners gave me the money to buy the $60 million jet. And when we come to church, there are 10,000 of us in the pews. And it doesn't matter that we're all standing side by side
4: because we're protected, because we're on the right side. And it's like, why not just think in terms of we should all look out for one another. We We should all think of one another. We should all take a step back
0: because you're making me do it. But because if I am sick, especially if I don't know it, I could make you sick. And I don't want that because I'm a decent person. You're a decent person. Bingo. And hopefully they will look at you and say the same thing. It doesn't matter that you're a Red Sox fan. And I'm a Yankee. Well, maybe it does matter.
2: Well, yeah, that's when but, you get very specific. <laughs> that's when you get very specific.
0: But I mean, the point is, the point of this story and the point to an extent of the frame is in the front is the setup. Hopefully the back, the back of the book is the payoff. But don't just react. Think for a moment. Think about what you're saying, what you're doing, what they're saying and what they're doing. If they, if someone says something that you feel is wrong, yeah, you could punch them in the face, but why not talk first and see why they think that? And maybe they'll, they'll, if you can listen to them, perhaps they will listen to you. It's, it is an ideal, but you know, I write comics. That isn't, the quintessence of fantasy and ideals. What is?
2: (laughs) Yeah. And look, I think that uh, the story works, but also the, the appeal to the X-Men is just how identifiable it is. If you look at it as a metaphor for your own ethnicity, maybe your sexual orientation or anything, you can always relate to this idea of they don't like you because you're different. And I think that this story took it to, you know, this sort of mature level with a capital M, uh, especially for 1982, and uh, I think including the you know the, the the more modern concern that was addressed in that uh, Magneto X Men Black story, you know the literally the children in cages that was you know in the headlines at that very time. And mm-hmm. you're right, I mean it's a it's a timeless story, which it would probably be more appealing if it was like oh I think back to 1982 when the world was still like that. You know, we've come so far since then. Um, Chris, I could talk to you about this but for I, another I, hour and a half, but right. I want to let you finish your thought. And I have one question from somebody. I, we've gotten so many questions from people, but I I, I do want to let you finish your thought. Well, I'm, not, you I'm not gonna ask
0: question. Well, I'm not going to because it would get me into a lot of trouble. So sure. Well, we don't <laughs> want that. Isn't there.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, but in any case, uh so we'll wrap up in a moment. But uh, Derek from Michigan wrote this. And the concept of his question might be horrifying for you to think about, but had you continued to write X-Men, what do you think the characters would be like now today, nearly 30 years later? If, if you had never left, I know you, you came back a couple of times, but if you stuck around for you know, the, the last, well, I guess, 29 years, do you think that they would be largely recognizable or would they be a, a vast departure from the characters we all loved in, say, 1991?
0: Well, my first solipsistic reaction is I'd like to think the uni- the comics industry would be a whole hell of a lot more successful.
4: Um sure. it, it, we'd keep saying you know. No, I mean my my basic plan
0: was if you're if I'm writing and you're reading, figure use every hundred issues as a benchmark. And 101, we, you know, issue 100, we just got off the ground. So what did we do? We introduced Phoenix. Issue 200, well, we got Gambit coming in now and Jubilee. So the idea was you have a core group of characters like Logan, like perhaps Cyclops. But even then we had, I wanted him to retire. That's why he met Madeline and went off to live happily ever after. Point was to take him out of the book and bring him back on special occasions but yes time would pass but that means superheroes have to grow up they have to go and live a real life because I'm sorry running around in skin tight costumes is not a real life <laughs> um, well because I'm, a, you know who the hell pays their taxes? <laughs> Who the hell gives them spending money for God's sakes? Sure. <laughs> Who does the dishes at the mansion or on Genosha for that matter?
4: Yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, but don't get me started.
2: No. Yeah. About that. Well, at least for the Avengers, the answer is Jarvis. Jarvis does the dishes. But for everybody else, you know, I, I, I thought I,
0: Jarvis was a self-aware computer. Well, he is now. Oh, no, you're really-
2: right. I'm thinking of the Butler Jarvis, but you're right. My well, my references are very dated. But. Tony Stark is
0: covered by the D.C. paradigm, which is somebody in your team is a multi-billionaire. Yeah. He, foot, he or she or it foot the bills. It's true. I mean, no, that's why one of the first things I did on Doctor Strange was he runs into a friend, you know, an old acquaintance who's an accountant who goes through his books and realizes, you haven't paid taxes in years. How do you pay the bills? He says, oh, and he just walks over to the safe and opens it up, and it's full of gold bars. <laughs> and it's like she goes, "Oh." Yeah you're a magician. I feel like an idiot. It's yeah there are lots of ways to wriggle, wiggle around it but the best thing for me about Spider-Man as a as a young person as a young adult was how does Peter pay his rent? Cuz I was in New York and I couldn't figure it out either. How do I pay my rent? <laughs> so this is a way of bonding. But every 100 issues we we nudge the group in a different direction. And you try to find a way to surprise people. Maybe Storm and Forge do go off together. You know? Um, It's, you find the thing that catches the reader by surprise, that they don't see coming. That, you know, the hint I I put at the end of of X-Men The End, Kitty does find true love. Yes, her first do- her first child is a girl who is a redhead. So who's her significant other? Well, how many people does she know who's a, who are redheads? Right. And have superpowers? Hmm. Well, I don't know. You figure it out. <laughs> or not? It's always yeah. you. You know you. So the point was that I also felt that the biggest mistake that Marvel made the two biggest mistakes were expanding the, the mutant population and revealing Wolverine's origin. I mean, I think that was just.
2: Yeah. I think, I think the, the baby step where you actually see him in the tank, getting the adamantium in, I think that was interesting. But then when it's like, well, he fought in the civil war and then he did all this. And I was like, no, I, I liked when we just didn't know you, know, I, well, I, I you can.
0: That. I don't. I have no problem with him fighting in the Civil War. I might have gone. You know, I w- might have thrown him. Which one? Oh, you know. Um, <laughs> That's uh, a great point. Yeah. Rome. Yeah. What? Yeah. He goes way back. <laughs> so the saber You know, yeah. it's. Um, but the the thing is that I look at when I was writing. Nightcrawler a few years ago I look at the school and all I can think of is like you've got all these students do they not have parents? Are they all estranged from their relationships? Do they not have siblings? Do they not have this? Do they not have that? Why do we never see any of that? Why do we never
4: get to know them as people as opposed to Mutant iterations. Um, you know, I mean, the point with um, Ziggy and the kid who looks like a giant bug
0: is they're kids. They, they're, they're involved in something that's way beyond their experience. It's scary. But if you don't, so you use the fact that they're kids as a way of reaching out to the audience and giving you a sense of what it's like to get powers like this, to have a kid
4: wake up one morning and he looks like a bug. Like, you know, it's... None of this is,
0: you know, it's adolescence is hard enough. Yeah. You know, it's Kitty kind of blacking out on one floor and waking up on the ground floor and thinking... How the hell did I get here? You don't, you know, it's it's giving the average reader an emotional kinetic touchstone with the events so that they can say, oh, yeah, I've been to a new school where I don't know anybody and I don't know where to sit. and And everybody's looking at me and making snide remarks. And how do I make friends? Where do I go? Who do I trust? How do I walk home? You know who do i sit next to on the bus these are all elements of life that we can that everyone can relate to hopefully but you find a way to take that and tweak it just a little and put it under the heading mutant and suddenly huh oh the one thing leads you into the the unreal reality what happens in the real reality can perhaps give you a touchstone and better understand the world you live in and the people who live around you. I mean, maybe that's getting a tad too pretentious, but that was always my kind of goal. When you have all of your characters living in this bubble, where all they know are people like them, where all they relate to our conflicts and adventures defined by their unique reality, where the interaction with the outside is limited. And from a perspective of prejudice in that outside is bad, they are a threat, inside is good, we are all alike. That I find disturbing. That's, though, and yes, I totally concede I am an old fart. I've been reading and doing this way long, but that's not the kind of story I would like to read or I would like my kids to read. They are not the kind of people I feel any interest in knowing. And as a totally capitalist entrepreneur i want to sell i want if i can find a way that this reframed god's love can perhaps reach out and and find one or two or three new readers who pick it up ah, okay i'll give it a look and think hmm how does the end go and then oh i like this let's see what else can, i can find that to me is is as I keep have said time and time again, that's gold. That's, that's matter. That matters. That's what writers do. We try to find an audience that embraces the characters as the characters embrace them. And then they pass on the word. And if we can, if I can do that, I have, I have fulfilled my obligation as a creator. And, you know, hopefully next issue I can sell, you know, sell a few more copies and a few more copies and a few right. more copies.
2: Well, the uh, the thing that we've been talking about for much of this time, of course, is this extended cut of uh, God Loves Man Kills. I'm very bad with the camera work here, but uh, uh, there's That's a... Yes, there's four different covers uh and uh there's also the second issue will come out uh Marvel shipping is a little bit delayed uh but uh, the second issue will come out somewhere in the next couple of months and uh Chris I oh, I really want... thought it was August. Oh, maybe it is August. Great. I I just didn't know how soon it was cuz I knew that they were they were doing every other month but it seems like they're getting caught up. Oh, okay.
0: Now. Great. I, so, yeah cuz the, the 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 flash I got from the office was First week of July, first week of August. Right. If it's first week of September, not bad. People might actually go out. They can smuggle something in to read.
2: Yeah. Well, I I feel (laughs) like that might be an excuse to try and take up more of your time. And, you know, we lost Rachel, our co host, because she had a work emergency. She did homework. She did homework. She (laughs) actually read First Flight. And she's an author. So she had questions about First Flight. I've always wanted to ask you about First Flight and Sovereign Seven. So at some point I would like to talk to you again about not the X-Men, but there's always, no X-Men are always at the forefront, you know? Look, I can, people can do worse. <laughs> well, in their career. Chris Claremont, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. We had so many questions in the chat and uh, I literally got to one of them. So my apologies to everyone and uh, everyone who would like to keep in touch with you. Uh, you're very present on Instagram at Chris Clear Mountain. Uh, You let people know what's going on in comics, but also just uh, in your day-to-day, you know, uh, some beautiful scenery in there too. So follow Chris at Chris Clear Mountain. Thank you again for uh, being so generous with your time. We really appreciate it.
0: One last thing, if I can. Yes, please. Uh, Either If you, anyone out there who has questions who did not get a chance to ask them, just send them to me on Instagram or on Facebook. You know,
2: um, I'll be happy to answer.
3: Very oh, yeah.
2: generous. Yeah, that's that's great, and I'm going to compile some from the live chat too, and uh, <laughs> you know maybe I'll bombard you with them. But uh, uh, until then, uh, well, again,
0: guarantee I'll be civil, but I'll answer.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, I I, I I know the uncivil ones, so I'll, I'll keep those to <laughs> myself. Uh, the extended cut of X Men: God Loves, Man Kills. Uh, I think everybody uh, should read it if you're if you're a comic book fan, if you're an X Men fan in particular. It's a great story. Uh rereading it for the first time in decades, uh, I was just struck by how how great it still is. So I want everyone to uh to check it out. Uh for me, I'm Christian Blad. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Christian DMZ. And Michael, where do people find you?
3: You can find me on Twitter at Michael X Shirley, and you can find me on Instagram at IHateMichael Shirley.
2: And uh, Rachel is uh, at uh, Rachel Goodman, author, no, Rachel Radner, author, and at Rachel Goodman on Twitter. Uh, we appreciate her being here. And uh, sorry that uh, you have one of those job things that got in your way, but uh, we will uh, talk to you soon. And uh, we will see everyone back here next Thursday at our regular time, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. But until then, as the great Stan Lee would say,
3: Excelsior.